Welcome, everyone, to the Full Life Podcast by Grace Church, where we hope to inspire, challenge, and clarify your next steps in faith. I'm David Lawson, and today, Pastor Bob Federhoff and I will be talking about your questions related to the end times. Specifically, in this episode, we'll be answering some of your questions that are related to the tribulation and the millennium. So, Bob, we have four questions that we're going to be answering today, Uh, and these questions were spawned by our series on the end times, by that name, the end times. And uh, for you listeners who haven't heard these messages yet, you can just go to worcestergrace.org where you can watch and you can listen to them. So, Bob, in your years of ministry, I'm sure you've seen this over and over again, where there's a lot of curiosity that's just kind of naturally developed around this topic about the end times. It just generates a lot of questions in people's minds. I'm sure you've seen that. Very much. Uh, It seems like every time we talk about this, every time we preach on this subject, people are interested. There's a great response. People want to know what's coming next. Some of that the Bible describes for us, but frankly— Some of that God leaves for his knowledge only, and we're just going to have to trust him with the future. But it's good to talk about the things that he has revealed in his word, and I'm excited to do that again today. Well, why don't we go ahead and get started then? Here's the first question that we received uh, from our listeners about this. It's related to the millennium, and the question is this, where are non-believers who have already died during the millennium? And so, Bob, I think this question is talking about non-believers who have died before Jesus came to or comes to inaugurate his earthly kingdom. And the question is, where are they then during the millennium? And actually, I think this, if I may, I think this is a good time to maybe, and I think it might be helpful for our listeners to talk about a couple of the different references that the Bible makes about what we'll just call the realm of the dead. Uh, When we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read different words that are used to describe where people go after they die and then where they'll ultimately end up even. So, for example, uh, we read and we hear terms like Sheol and the pit and the grave and the abyss, Uh, words like paradise, a phrase like uh, Abraham's bosom, heaven, hell, Hades. (laughs) <laughs> there are so many words. It's actually pretty confusing when in our minds, we often just think about, well, there's a good place and a bad place, yet there's all of these other words that are related to it. So um, it might not be necessary to talk about all of those, but I do think a couple of those come into play when it comes to answering this question. It's a good place to talk about that. So why don't you take us through a couple of those primary teachings that the Bible gives to us about where people go when they die. Um, I'm glad to do that. Uh, In general, let me just make this statement as we begin. For both believers and unbelievers, throughout history and for years to come, there is both a temporary place and an eternal place Mm. that God has reserved. That's good. And I think we need to make that general distinction as we begin. Now, in the Old Testament, for instance, when... The next life is mentioned, or the life to come is mentioned. It's often described simply with the Hebrew word sheol. For instance, in Psalm 139, David talks about how God's presence is manifested in sheol. Some Bibles translate that word the pit or something Mm. else. Mm. Uh, David says, you will not leave my soul in sheol. So sheol in the Old Testament refers to a place where 
believers and unbelievers both went. Apparently, there were two compartments in Sheol in the Old Testament times. For believers, for followers of God, those people of faith, they went to a place called paradise, one of the compartments in Sheol. For unbelievers, they went to Gehenna or to Hades, to hell. Now, how do we know about those two different locations? Well, when Jesus died, we're told Mm -hmm. that he went to paradise. In fact, he said to the thief on the cross next to him when he was dying, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. Mm -hmm. And of course, Paul writing to the Ephesians said that when Jesus arose, he led captivity captive. So apparently believing saints in the Old Testament were brought out of paradise and then were transported to the very presence of God himself as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So the Old Testament refers to Sheol as the place of the dead, both believing and unbelieving, with two different compartments, a place of blessing in paradise, a place of cursing in Gehenna or in hell. We come to the New Testament, however, and there's a different word that's used, especially as it relates to unbelievers. That word is Hades. It's a Greek word. The word, again, means hell. Of course, we read about that in Luke chapter 16. We're told in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. In other words, when we come to the New Testament, we're reminded that Hades is a temporary waiting place of the unsaved dead, those who are apart from God. It's a place of torment that begins the moment of an unbeliever dies. That's true then for years to come. Of course, for believers who die in Christ, Paul's clear about this, Mm. to be absent from the body now is to be present with the Lord. Not to go to paradise, a place of blessing, Mm. apart Mm. from God's direct presence, but to go directly to his presence to be with him, to be with the Savior. So the common experience, both for uh, Old Testament saints And for New Testament saints now is that we are in the presence of the Lord upon our death. So that gives you a little bit of an overview as to what Scripture teaches concerning these concepts that are a bit confusing. Now, when we come then to uh, those who have died prior to the millennium, we're talking about unbelievers then, we can say, based on what Scripture teaches, that they are existing in a place of torment called Hades or hell. So I, th- I think what you just talked about there about uh, Sheol and Hades is a really, um, I think that might be very insightful for people because when we, uh, again, we, we don't think about uh, believers and non-believers uh, before you know, believing saints and non-believing people um, before the ascension of Christ as being in a place with the same name, <laughs> you know, right. like Sheol. Right. But there were two. There were two. There was the paradise part, and then there was the um, uh, the help of the t- place of torment 
part. And then after Jesus resurrected from the dead, now Hades is only occupied by the non-believing dead, and it's a place of torment. I think that's a good distinction. So you, what you would say is that non-believers right now and uh, are, are being held in this place called Hades, and they are awaiting uh, a resurrection later on that we would call to judgment, uh, to the great white throne correct. judgment later at the end of the millennium before the creation of the new heaven That's and a new earth. Okay. Um, now, I think this kind of begs um, another question that we might want to address, even though it wasn't asked by somebody. Um, and I'm not trying to make trouble <laughs> for you and me, but but here's the question that I think uh, this question by the listener begs for us, and that is this. Uh, what happens to people who die during the millennium? Now, that might be something that a lot of people don't think about uh, when it comes to millennium, but uh, the full effects of the curse have not been reversed uh, during the millennium. Uh, so let's start with the, let's start with the easier question. Uh, what happens to non-believers who die during the millennium? millennium? What, what would you say to that? Well, let me just uh, clarify again, first, that there are people who apparently die during the millennium, as you've said. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 65, we read these words, Never again will there be in Jerusalem an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred, again, we're talking about during the millennium, mm-hmm. will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. So apparently, there are people who will die during the millennium. Maybe we should also add one of the conditions of the millennium. Mm. Well, they are amazing, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Yes. Um, it's a time when Jesus rules and reigns with the saints for a thousand years. In many respects, we could think of the millennium as a time when the earth experiences a, a glimpse of what it was like before mm. the fall. Right. Um, because the lion and the lamb, we're mm-hmm. told in Isaiah, lie down together, for instance. Mm-hmm. There is harmony and peace in creation like we've never experienced on earth since the time of the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, there is amazing tranquility, harmony that exists in creation and among humanity. Mm-hmm. However, those who are living on the earth and mm-hmm. born during the millennium are still born with the tendency Mm. to rebel and disobey God. Mm. So apparently there are people who are existing during the millennium, who are Mm. living during the millennium, who have hard hearts Mm. toward the things of God. And when they die, Mm -hmm. they go somewhere. Right. The question is where? Well, the consistent teaching of Scripture is that, again, they go to hell. How do we know that? Because Revelation 20 tells us that death and Hades gave Mm -hmm. up the dead Mm -hmm. that were in them. Well, that's coming at the time of the great white throne judgment. And at that time, that is a great time of judgment when God judges those who have rejected him. And let me read for you from Revelation 21 just for a moment. When the thousand years are over, Satan's released from his doom and will go out to deceive Mm. the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather 
to battle, in number there like the sand on the seashore, they marched across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven, devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Mm. So before that time, the beast and the false prophet of the tribulation have been thrown into this lake of burning sulfur, hell itself, as have all those people who have been born during the millennium mm. and have rejected Jesus. Mm. So the short answer, I mean, the short answer to this would they are in Hades. They're, they're in that realm of the dead and the place of torment. Now, here's here's the more difficult question, and that is what happens to believers who die during the millennium. And uh, I'm going to take a little stab at this. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish the Lord actually revealed for us the answer to this uh, explicitly, but it isn't explicitly stated in the text, um, the, the answer to this question. So in pursuing this question, we're going to have to make some inferences based upon some things that we know, while at the same time keeping an open hand and uh, falling short of definitive statements and conclusions about it. So here's some things that we know. We know that the millennium is referenced in Revelation chapter 20 and even described by the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and some of the minor prophets as well. But the millennium is inaugurated at the second coming of Jesus to earth, which is described for us in Revelation chapter 19. And it's not heaven. It's not the same as heaven. And I think that's important. Yeah, things are great. Like Just like you described and just like you read for us uh, from the prophets, uh, things are great, but it's an earthly kingdom. It's not heaven. Yes, Jesus will reign. Yes, he's going to be worshiped. Jerusalem's going to be the capital. War is going to cease. We're going to be, it's going to be a time that's going to be characterized uh, by righteousness and peace and tranquility and justice, all those things. But it's not heaven. People will live long, but there will still be death, as you said, or at least the possibility of it. And the full effects of the curse of sin, even though this is a great environment, great kingdom, great ruling, so forth, the full effects of the, uh, of the curse of sin have not been reversed yet. And while everyone who enters into the millennium are those who will believe, not everyone who is born during the millennium will believe. Uh, do you agree with all that? I absolutely. Uh, again, just to review what we've studied previously, the, one of the last events coming out of the tribulation heading into the millennium is this event called the judgment of the sheep and goat nations that's described in Matthew 25. And at that event, those who whom the scriptures describe as goats are cast into Hades and to hell for the period of the millennium. But those who are sheep are living saints who enter the millennium uh, with the Lord. And so they populate along with mm. uh, those who have come with Christ from heaven. They populate the earth during the millennium. And to those people who are uh, living on the earth during the millennium, uh, children are born. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, they have a wonderful, um, a wonderful world in which to live, but it's a world mm. still 
that has uh, given them the opportunity to choose either to trust the Lord's way, God's way, or to follow their own way. Mm. And some, in fact, do choose to follow their own way and then are judged because of it. Yeah, and and that's going to come into play with one of our questions at the later on uh, at the end of the millennium. But the question is now, what happens to believers when they die? Well, we, we're actually not told what happens to believers right. when they die in, during the millennium. Of course, we know that uh, they will be at the Lord. Paul is very clear about that, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And we have no reason to believe that that won't be the case. As a matter of fact, those believers are with Jesus in during his millennial reign here on earth. But we also know that there is no other resurrection event of the saints that is recorded in the scripture. So, um, there are some reasonable assumptions that we can make or some speculation, may I call it holy speculation that we can make or righteous speculation that we can make. Um, one of those would be that saints who die will somehow be resurrected maybe even immediately at the millennium or at an event that's not recorded in the scriptures, not revealed for us, uh, sometime before the new heaven and the new earth. And the reason for that is because we need to have immortal, glorified bodies in order to be occupants of heaven. Or another uh, um, another suggestion would be that the righteous might not, it's possible that the righteous might not experience physical death. It doesn't mean they're immortal. It just means that they, during the time of the millennium, they might not experience physical death, but sometime before the new heaven and the new earth, um, their bodies will get glorified and uh we could speculate that that would be an event that would be similar to the rapture for those who are still alive when Jesus comes back. Their body is translated into immortality and to, and to become glorified. We don't really know for sure. Again, we hold this with an open hand uh, very loosely. Um, but one thing we do know, that everyone who enters into heaven is going to have an immortal, glorified body. Any, any thoughts that you want to add to any of that? I think you've pretty well covered it. That's a... That's probably about as far as I want to go because you're right in saying that Scripture doesn't give us a lot of information there, and we need to just rest in what we can say that we know and uh, leave the rest in God's hands. All right. Let's go to the second question. I think it's going to be a pretty quick answer for us. The second question is this, is uh, who is Satan building his army with at the end of the millennium when he is released? You referred to it a little bit earlier on, but uh, why don't you review that for us? Right, this is in Revelation 20, and I've read uh, these verses previously. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. So the simple answer to the question is that Satan builds his forces at the end of the millennium with those who have chosen their own way, the way of evil mm. and not the way of the Lord Jesus himself. Mm. So um, the reason that he is able to gather these and deceive these people is uh, because their hearts are inclined that way, which kind of um, is more evidence uh, for our understanding that uh, there's still this tendency to sin, even in the millennium. Right. Even these great conditions right. <laughs> that people will be living in, there's still going to be this tendency to rebel. Yeah, exactly. Um, the world is as it has never been since the days of creation, uh, including the reign of Jesus himself. Mm. And yet deep inside, 
Every human heart is this tendency to do life our way Mm. instead of God's way. Mm. And that comes to full fruition at the end of the millennium when Satan leads this final rebellion and some of those living on the earth follow his way rather than God's way. Yeah, we we are so prone, aren't we, to have our, our excuses for why we sin and why we rebel and why we're prideful and all that kind of stuff. We tend to blame... Uh, all the circumstances and situations and people who are around us, if there's anything that this proves to us is we don't need those <laughs> excuses, and those really aren't the excuse. Right. Uh, it's our own fallenness. Okay, question number three. Is the Bema Seat judgment in the middle of the tribulation or before? Now, we read about the Bema Seat judgment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and Bob, uh, in an earlier podcast on the End Times, the part two podcast of this series, uh, you talked to us about that, but why don't you take us back through that briefly and what we know about when it occurs. Uh, gladly. Once again, let me define the Bema Seat judgment, or the judgment seat of Christ, as it's also described. Uh, the, the word Bema actually refers to a platform uh, for a judge or a king. Pilate, um, who ultimately uh, sentenced Christ to die, and Herod sat on these. They were a platform given to uh, judges or kings or those who were in authority. Now, the Apostle Paul uses that concept to describe uh, something that happens with believers, with saints in heaven, called the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ. At that event, Scripture tells us believers are rewarded to varying degrees based on their obedience and the condition of their works or the quality of their works. Now, here's the verse that talks about the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all, speaking to believers, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body, that is, whether they are good or bad. So there's the event, and here's a little more description about what happens. Um, In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, If any man builds on the foundation, that is Christ's foundation, with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll Mm. suffer loss, Mm. but he himself will still be saved, yet so as through fire. So apparently, Paul's saying there is this uh, evaluation or um, discerning of our works to determine the quality of the works, Mm. whether they've been done from the right motive, the right heart, and uh, that determines whether we are rewarded and uh, experience the benefit of what God has for us or or whether, frankly, we stand before a gracious God with... uh, empty hands, so to speak, um, and unable to enjoy all uh, that we might have enjoyed had we really uh, lived here on earth for his glory and his honor. Mm. Now, let me just take another minute to uh, go a little farther with this, because um, I think that it's at the Bema seat where uh, God provides rewards for believers that are often simply called crowns Mm. in the Mm. scriptures. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, we read in 1 Corinthians 9 about an incorruptible crown Mm. for those who run the race of life acceptably. 
Uh, so there's that kind of crown. There's the crown of life that James mentions for those who resist temptation in James chapter 1, verse 12. There's the crown of rejoicing that Paul mentions to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, for those who re- reach others for Christ. And there's great joy in seeing somebody come to faith in Christ here on this earth, but there's going to be incredible joy one mm. day in heaven mm. when we look somebody in the eyes that has come to faith because Amen. of our testimony Amen. and our willingness to share Christ with that individual. Mm. Um, so there's a crown of rejoicing. There is a crown of righteousness, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, for those who anxiously await the coming of Jesus. And then there's the crown of glory that Paul descri- uh, that Peter describes for those who are faithful under shepherds of the Lord. So there are a, a number of different kinds of crowns mm. that are identified, and this may well be the place where those are distributed to believers mm. who have been faithful. Mm. What we do, you know, we when we think about the things we do, when we, the Christian uh, usually refers to those as works. Um, yes. Certainly, uh, we understand that we are saved by um, grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Paul says it's not by works so that no one can boast. There's not going to be any kind of bragging in heaven about what you and I did to get there. It's all going to be bragging about the work of Jesus Christ in our behalf. Yet, what we do in the body is important. Uh Our ministry is valuable, and it has significance, and it has meaning, and that's going to be judged. And probably the more sobering part about the Bayman Seat judgment for me is that uh, our thoughts, our motives, our heart will even be judged. So I can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and it will be like filthy rags, or it will be uh, tarnished. It will be wood, hay, and stubble that's going to be burned up. So our ministry matters, and how we go about our ministry matters. Yes, amen to that. That's right. Uh, now, maybe I, I, if I can, just take a moment to say that as far as the the time yeah. when that judgment occurs, uh, it certainly happens after the rapture of the church. It happens in heaven. Uh, it happens apparently while the earth is experiencing that time called the tribulation, that seven-year period where God pours out his wrath on the earth. And it it happens before the millennium begins Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we're told that when the saints come with Jesus at the end of the tribulation, uh, they are uh, wearing white robes. So apparently... Uh, they have been evaluated, and God himself gives them these white robes to wear, gives us Amen. our white robes Amen. to wear Amen. as we return to earth with the Lord Jesus. And so uh, the the Bema seat must happen uh, before the beginning of the millenniums, probably sometime during the tribulation there in heaven. Amen. Thank you. Um, again, another... A very important event that aligns our lives today with what God would have for us. All right, let's go to the fourth question. This will be our last one for today. Do non-believers have the option to accept Jesus during the tribulation or millennium? Um, I think that's a a good question and one that uh, deserves some attention. So uh, what would you say about that? Do do people have the option of accepting Jesus uh, during the tribulation and during the millennium? Well, the short answer is yes. 
During the tribulation, for instance, uh, there is a, a, two different uh, groups of people who are identified as being witnesses for uh, Jesus as Messiah. There are 144,000 witnesses described in Revelation chapter 7, 12,000 from each of the tribes of mm, Israel, mm. 144,000 who have chosen to identify mm. with Jesus as their Messiah, who go into the world to proclaim the gospel of Christ during the tribulation. Furthermore, Revelation 11 describes two witnesses that we've already um, mentioned before in a previous podcast who also have the primary job of pointing people to the Messiah. So as a result of the testimony of these witnesses, people turn in faith during the tribulation to Christ as Messiah. The same thing is true during the millennium, not the same witnesses, but the same thing is true during the millennium. Those who are born during the millennium, as I said previously, have the opportunity to choose either God's way or their own way. Mm. Some choose to follow Christ as king, as he reigns. Others choose to follow their own way. Mm. Now, having said all of that, there is an important distinction that we need to make mm -hmm. and something that needs to be uh, emphasized because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, mm -hmm. Paul gives us a pretty clear description of what happens when the evil one gains control of the world, um, albeit within the boundaries of what God has established, right. uh, Satan really is unleashed on the earth during the tribulation. And at that time, his emissary, the man of lawlessness, mm -hmm. is revealed. Paul calls him the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, that's the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. But later on, we read, um, the lawless one is revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed mm. in all kinds of counterfeit mm. miracles, signs, and wonders, mm -hmm. and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to mm -hmm. love the truth yep. and so be saved. I'll press pause there. So what's happening is that the evil one is imitating, apparently, yes. through the work of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness on earth. He's imitating um, miraculous signs, performing things that would cause people to follow him mm -hmm. for a while, and the great majority of people on earth are drawn to that. They're attracted to his charismatic personality and his apparent supernatural ability. Perhaps he's providing answers for the world that the world has sought for generations. Mm. We don't know mm. um, all the things that are going on, but we do know that he displays all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and he deceives those who perish. And then Paul says they perish because they refuse to love the truth. That's the ultimate heart condition, isn't it, of yes. those who are apart from Christ, and so be saved. Then Paul says this, for this reason, this is during the tribulation, mm -hmm. God sends them a powerful delusion so mm. that they'll believe the lie. Mm. So apparently, for some, it may be those who have heard the gospel before the tribulation ever begins. Mm -hmm. It may be especially for those who rejected Christ mm -hmm. before the rapture of the church occurred. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned 
who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Mm. We don't know all the reasons why people choose not to follow Christ, but I can say this. Mm. Perhaps the central reason is because deep inside everyone's heart, there is mm-hmm. a tendency to do life mm-hmm. our way instead of God's way. Mm-hmm. And when the opportunity presents itself because of all these appealing things that the Antichrist does, then that path is chosen by those who've rejected Jesus. Yeah, and that is, you know, that delusion, uh, the lies and the deception being accompanied by those those signs and wonders that are there uh, are part of the delusion because we know that the apostles, right? It talks about the signs and wonders that the apostles uh, performed were for the sake of authenticating the gospel message, the good news about the the love and the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus performed signs to authenticate the fact that he is the son of man, that he is the son of God, that he uh, is God in flesh and he was the Messiah. And now because the, the evil one is such a you know a master hmm. of deception. Yes, uses those apparent signs and wonders for his own benefit uh, and to persuade people away from uh, the truth about who Jesus is. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Um, and I'm as as, I, as we're talking about this, I'm reminded of something my dad told me a long time ago as we were talking about. Uh, a particular situation, and he made a comment that I'll never forget. He said, you know, Bob, sometimes the blindness of sin is almost mm. beyond belief. Mm. I don't think we recognize the, the depravity of our own hearts, of the mm. human heart. And so during the tribulation, despite the amazing testimony of all these witnesses, despite the pro- bold proclamation around the globe of the gospel of Christ, these signs and wonders performed by evil mm. apparently are attractive to the evil in the human heart. And so those who have chosen to reject Jesus are deluded mm. to follow the evil one himself. So this delusion is effective on those who have chosen not to believe and to embrace the truth. Well, I think that does it, Bob, for this episode. But before we wrap up, um, what would you say is a good next step for all of us coming out of this brief overview of the future and the, these these questions that we've been answering about the future? Because we believe, uh, and this is one thing I love about your ministry and Pastor Nick's ministry and the ministry of this church, is we always believe that there is a next step that should align our hearts with the truth that we've been uh, exposed to, either through the reading of the scripture ourselves or through the preaching or the teaching uh, of the scripture, because we are always in want (laughs) compared to the standard of scripture. And uh, there are some truths that we've talked about today, actually, that are pretty significant for us, and there's got to be a next step for us uh, what would you say the next step would be for us to pursue the full life that God has for us? I would use this one sentence. I think that God wants us always to focus on what we know, hmm. not what we don't know. He has revealed so much in his word that we can know for sure about the past, the present, and the future. We need to understand what he says, what he's revealed in his word. Hmm. 
it's so easy to fall into the trap of being enamored with what we don't know. That's right. To fall prey to endless speculation. You know, Paul talks about that as he wrote to Timothy. He talks about how people will be more uh, infatuated with or more interested in Mm -hmm. sort of endless speculation. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, he says one of the conditions of this world at the end of this age is that people will be always learning but never never able to acknowledge the truth. And I think that the lesson we need to learn is to focus on what is true. That, of Mm. course, begins with Jesus, who said, I am what? The truth. Amen. Right? He's the truth. So the more we learn about him, the better. We can't go wrong starting mm-hmm. there. And the more we learn about what he will do and what how he will reign, we can't go wrong there either as long as Scripture's talking about it clearly. Where we get into trouble is where we go down the road of endless speculation. Right. So focus on what we know, yes. not on what we don't know. Yeah. And as we've uh, tried to remind ourselves through this whole series, um, the end times, just like any other aspect of human history, is about Jesus. It's not about trivia. It's okay to have uh, a curiosity. That's part of being created in the image of God. That's part of who we are as human beings. We're curious, and that's fine. But as long as we don't lose sight of Jesus and uh, become content with what we know, um, uh, then we'll then we'll be fine. And I think there's one other thing that I'd like to mention here. I think it's around deception. Uh, We just talked about this. We're so easily deceived. We're so easily duped. And uh, we're so quick uh, to blame other people or to blame our circumstances. And there's no doubt that there are times when uh, uh, difficult circumstances come into our lives. We have to acknowledge that. And there are people who uh, have authority over us, uh, who maybe at one time in our lives um, uh, made life difficult for us. No one's um, dismissing any of that. But the fact is we all do have a responsibility uh, to know the truth so the truth can set us free. And uh, we just don't want to be deceived um, by the lies because the, the evil one is working overtime uh, to render inoperative as Christians our ministry. And for any of you who uh, are listening and who do not know Jesus, uh, just know that, that you're right where the evil one wants you. And my encouragement to you is to seek out the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. And if you have any question about that, you can feel free to call us, get in contact with us. We'd love to talk with you about uh, the full life that God has for you. Well, thanks, Bob. Uh, I think those are great next steps for us. Thanks for reminding us of those. And uh, we're glad you could join us for this Full Life podcast. We trust that today's podcast is added to and even strengthened your faith journey. Uh, Remember that Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. And of course, our prayer is that you would pursue the full life that God has for you.